You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Well, if you came in today and did not receive a handout for today's message, if you'd like to receive one so you can jot some notes down, uh, we have one, we'll get one to you. If you need a pen, uh, we'd love to get one of those to you because that's easier to write with, with a pen and take some notes as well. So if you need a pen or a handout, just hold your hand up and we'll get one of those to you. But we are going to finish up our little mini-series that we started last week called For God So Loved the World. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at our foundation scripture. It's found in John chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. So would you do me a favor? Would you? It's up on the screen there for you. Would you do me a favor? And let's all read it together. Ready? Let's read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Aren't you glad? You know, I learned that scripture when I was just oh, maybe a little bitty guy, and uh, I'm so glad that I learned it back then. It took it a little while for it to take in my life, but eventually it caught on and I gave my heart to Christ and then the good news is, is that he loved us first. Not that we loved him, the Bible says, but that we loved, or he loved us first and sent Jesus as a gift to die for each and every one of us. Now, I want to point out something in that scripture. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to just focus for just a second on that phrase, whoever believes in him. You know, it's not just enough to believe that Jesus exists or existed, but it's an ongoing relationship. The word believes there actually is, is a continuous thing, and it is something that we grow in in our lives. So once we give our hearts to Christ, we become born again then we don't ever stop believing in him and we grow in him. And so it's all in, in our relationship with him, but especially the most important thing that we could believe is, is that he came, he died, and he was raised from the dead. In other words, he accomplished his mission. Can you say amen to that? Now, uh, last Easter, Easter a year ago, April the 17th, I uh, spent a lot of time in that message referring to the physiological things that Jesus experienced when he died on the cross. And so we went through a lot of that great detail, and I only refer you to that. So if you wanted to go back and listen to that, you can, because what I want to do is I don't want to focus so much on the cross. The cro- Thank God for the cross. Thank God for what Jesus did on the cross. But I want to focus on what happened on Sunday morning because it's Sunday morning. Amen. So if you want to know some of those things that Jesus experienced that, that led up to his death, go back and refer to that message. But what I want to do is I want to pick up from the moment that he died 
on that Friday evening. Actually, he died at approximately 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon. And uh, so the soldiers came by and were, as was their tradition, when somebody was crucified, that they would, uh, to expedite their death, they would break their legs. They came by, found out Jesus was already dead, so they did not break his legs. And um, that would lead to, if the legs were broken, it would lead to whoever was being crucified literally to suffocate to death. But Jesus, uh, he was already dead, and it actually fulfilled a prophecy in the Old Testament that said not one of his bones would be broken. And so he fulfilled every part of that plan, every part of what was prophesied about what he would accomplish at the cross. And so it came time to take his body down. They could not leave his body on the cross uh, because at 6 p.m., the Passover uh, would be completed and the Sabbath would start. And so they, they, and of course, if you're familiar with old Judea law, that they, um, they had to, uh, you know, cease all of their labors on the Sabbath day. So they, there would be no activity uh, from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday. So, so Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man, and we'll find out why in just a second, came to Pilate and requested Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross. And so Pilate granted that that would happen. And so they took Jesus' body and they laid it in Joseph's tomb. Now, one of the things that we know about Joseph of Arimathea, knowing that he was a wealthy man, was that the Bible says that his tomb was hewn out of a rock and only wealthy people could afford a tomb that was literally like a cave. And uh, most, uh, you know, poorer people, people of lesser means, would just have a traditional burial in the ground as, at much like what we know today. But, but since Joseph was, uh, had some means that he asked for Jesus' body and actually loaned Jesus his tomb. Now, I don't think he fully understood that it was alone, but he, he wanted Jesus to have the nicest burial that he possibly could. And so they laid his body in the tomb. Now, what I want to do today is I want to start out again, picking up at that moment. And so there were many people who were standing at the foot of the cross and witnessed Jesus' death on the cross but there was also a large group of individuals that verified that Jesus was indeed dead. So I want to look at some of those for just a moment. In Luke, the 23rd chapter, this isn't in your notes, but I want to just mention it anyway. In the 50th through the 56th verses, we see this group of people that verified that Jesus was dead. The first one was, as I mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea. And he made sure that Jesus' body was carefully laid inside the tomb. Now, there was another man that was present at this moment. His name was Nicodemus. You might refer, remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Matter of fact, John 3.16 was actually spoken by Jesus to Nicodemus, who came to him in the night and said, what must I do to be born again? And so Jesus replied to him and gave him that answer. And so Nicodemus is the one that provided the embalming uh, solutions that were made up of herbs and, <clears throat> excuse me, that type of thing. And, 
And they helped in preparing Jesus' body and, <clears throat> pardon me, and then laying him and placing him in the tomb. And then there was a couple of ladies that were present, and that is Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, who lovingly examined his body and carefully contemplated every aspect. In other words, they went into the tomb, looked at the tomb, made sure that it was going to be appropriate for somebody that they loved and esteemed like the Lord Jesus. And so all of these people verified that Jesus was indeed dead, that his body was prepared, and that it was laid in the tomb. Now Matthew, in the 27th chapter, in verses 62 through 66, again, not in your notes, but just wanted to mention these people. So after... Jesus died, and after his body was laid in the tomb, there was a fear among the religious leaders that the disciples would come and steal Jesus' body and then just declare that Jesus had been raised from the dead because Jesus had indicated that he was going to be raised from the dead. And so they didn't want this rumor to be spread and then the, the disciples to be able to substantiate this rumor. So what the, the Roman soldiers did is accommodated what the religious leaders asked them to do. And so we have Rome's official officer who was responsible and answered to Pilate. And so he went into the tomb and examined the body of Jesus to verify that it was indeed Jesus and that he was really dead. And then all of the chief priests and elders came in on the heels of the Roman officer and they entered the tomb and they found out and looked upon Jesus' body and put an end to their worries that somehow he had survived and was still alive. And again, they wanted to make sure there was no possibility that Jesus would be able to get up. How many of you know, I don't care how hard you try, but when that's what God's plan is, that's what's going to happen. Can I get an Amen. And then the last ones to see Jesus' body dead were the Roman guards. And again, they went into the tomb. They checked the contents of the tomb because they wanted to know for sure that a body was there because their assignment was to guard the body in depth, in shifts, and to make sure that the body stayed in place. So they didn't want to look foolish, in other words, and find out that there wasn't actually a body in there. So they went in and made sure that the body was there, and then following all of these people going in and determining that Jesus was indeed dead, they rolled the stone in front of the tomb, at the entrance of the tomb, and per Pilate's instructions, sealed the tomb. Now what this means is, is that they put a piece of, of, of uh, actually it was like a rope, and a stamp on the, the, the tomb door or the stone and then to the actual wall of the tomb itself. And if this string ever got broken, this rope ever got broken, then it was apparent that the tomb had been tampered with. So they put this seal on it after all of these inspections had been made. And so while the Roman soldiers watched, while the chief priests and elders watched, this seal was placed on there once and for all. And the purpose of the seal was twofold, to authenticate that Jesus indeed was dead, and therefore they could know that uh, if there was a rumor of his resurrection, that it was not true. 
And so regardless of all of these efforts to secure the site and to keep Jesus inside of the grave, it was impossible for death to hold him. Now let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This is referenced on your notes, but look at this. Paul, or Peter, rather, preaching in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he said this, this man's destiny was prearranged. This is the Passion Translation. For God knew that Jesus would be handed over to you, referring to the religious people, to be crucified and that you would execute him on a cross by the hands of lawless men, talking about the Romans. Yet it was all part of his predetermined plan. You know, the scripture makes reference that says, if the devil had known what was going to happen, he would have never crucified the Lord. Thank God he wasn't smart enough to figure it out. Amen. So, but look at this, verse 24, God destroyed the cords of death and raised Jesus up because it was impossible. Say impossible. It was impossible for death's power to hold him prisoner. Hallelujah. So now we, we are, we, I brought you up very quickly. We're, we're now at sometime between 6 p.m. on Saturday evening and the morning, early morning hours of Sunday. So what I want to do is I want to go to Matthew 28 and I want to look at verses 1 through 7. So I believe this is on your notes. So let's look at this. It says, and by the way, Matthew did not record this exactly in chronological order. So I'm going to read these verses and then I'm going to show you, I'm going to move a verse and show you chronologically how it actually happened. So verse one says this, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now verse one should have actually been placed in the text a little later, a couple verses down. So really, what we know as Matthew 28, of course, originally it wasn't written in chapter and verse, but it should begin in verse 2. So let's look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So what happened? Sometime between 6 p.m. on Saturday evening and the early morning hours of Sunday, and there was a great earthquake. Now the word great there in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, is the Greek word mega, meaning anybody ever heard of the word mega? It means big, it means uh, extreme. And so this little, this earthquake was not just a little rumbling, this was a mega quake. And so it says, and there was a great earthquake. Now what happened? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So sometime leading up to this point, life was breathed back into Jesus' body as his spirit and his body were reunited. And he was raised up not only from physical death, but from spiritual death as well. You know, I've mentioned to you before that there's great debate among religious circles as far as did Jesus actually go to hell? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians that he that ascended first descended. And so what I want you to understand is this. If he did not go to hell, you cannot go to heaven. 
So he did. He went to hell, paid the price for us, and then the words from heaven that God spoke caused life to come back into his spirit man. And he rose up and he conquered the powers of death, hell, and the grave. And his spirit was reunited with his body. And at that same time, there was so much power that erupted in that tomb, it caused a great earthquake to take place. And at the same time the earthquake was taking place, there was an angel of the Lord that descended from heaven that came and rolled back the stone from the door. And I like this, and he sat on the stone. Now, there are some debates, and you know, you can believe about this. I choose to believe what I'm getting ready to tell you, and that is this. The Greek language says that the angel actually made a chair out of the stone that was in front of the tomb. Now, this stone was not just a little thing. This stone was great. It was big. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 4, when the ladies arrived at the tomb, they noticed how big the stone was. So I want you to imagine something. An angel, it wasn't like Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall. This angel made a chair out of that stone that was rolled in front of the tomb and he sat upon it. So, so there's some debate there, but I believe that this wasn't an angel that's five, six like me. I be, believe this was an angel that was very, very big and could just simply sit down on that stone. Now, I want you to picture that with me. And his countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, there were four Roman guards that were placed on the tomb in three-hour shifts, and they worked these shifts all night long. So we don't know who was working at this particular moment, but the Bible says that when this angel appeared and he rolled back the stone, that it caused these guards to become so afraid that the Bible says that they were literally knocked to the ground and were trembling on the ground. Now, I believe that the power of God was so strong that they didn't just fall down. I believe the power of God knocked them down. Now, the Bible says after they came to themselves and they were realized what was going on. Now, I want you to imagine before you get too critical of these Roman soldiers, how would you react if a giant angel appeared and rolled the stone away right in front of your face and rolled it down and then sat down on it. I don't know about you, but I might be quaking in my boots a little bit too. But what's interesting is it says that the, uh, that the angel, the guard shook for fear because of him and became like dead man. But look at this. But the angel answered and said to the women. So here's what I want us to do. Verse 1 this is where verse 1 should be injected. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, I want you to notice something. The reason that I feel like I can make this switch is because they came to observe the tomb and make no mention of the Roman guards. Why? They were gone. They turned and fled. 
Their words, once they got up off the ground, were, feet don't fail me now, I'm out of here. <coughs> and so they left. And the women, it says, now roll up on the scene. And then verse 5, but the angel answered and said to the women. So they now approach the tomb. The angel, this giant that's on the outside, he says to them, do not be afraid. Now, why, why would he, if he looked like me, I don't know that they would have any reason to be all that afraid. But when you're looking at a big fella, like this guy probably was, he needed to tell him, hey, look, look, don't be afraid. He said, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And then it says, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they walk into the tomb and they're standing there inside of the tomb. And again, as I mentioned to you, Mark 16, 4, it says, and when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. This wasn't again, a little bitty uh, stone, but this was something that was great. And again, I want us to look at what the angel looked at and looked like. Now notice how the stone got removed. We see in verse two that there was the great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now I want to just take a little side note for just a second. This is free. This won't cost you anything. But Matthew goes on to record a little bit later in this same chapter that at the same time this earthquake took place and Jesus was raised from the dead, that the Bible says that other graves were opened and other people got up and were raised from the dead. Now, I mean, that is absolutely, I mean, amazing, awesome. Can you imagine you're minding your own business and all of a sudden you see somebody that looks like Moses walking through town or Uncle Frank that you buried six months ago. All of a sudden you see him and you know he was gone. You saw, you went to the funeral. You saw that he was gone and all of a sudden he's alive. There was so much power present when Jesus was raised from the dead that it spilled over into those other people that were surrounding the tomb and they too were raised from the dead. Now somebody says, oh, pastor, that just seems too far-fetched. Well, let me take you back in this again, little side journey. John chapter 11, where Jesus showed up at the tomb of Lazarus. You remember that story? And the Bible says he rolls up to the tomb. He says to the father, he said, Father, I thank you that you always hear me when I pray. Because he had already dealt with this situation in prayer. And so he steps up to the tomb. And what does he say? Does he just step up and say, hey, come forth? No, he called him by name. He said, Lazarus, come forth. You know why Jesus had to call him by name? Because if Jesus had just said, get up, come forth, Lazarus would not have been the only one that got up. 
Well, and so the angel rolls the stone back. He sits upon the stone. And Matthew informs us that not only was the angel strong and of large stature, but his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. The immense size, power, and brilliance of this angel explains why the Romans cut out. They were gone. And so when the women stepped into the tomb, they were expecting to see Jesus' body laying there. Remember, they had seen it before now. They helped put his body in there. They helped perhaps uh, take the spices and roll his body up in the linen cloths that were there. And so when they stepped into the tomb, the Gospel of John tells us that when they looked into the tomb, they found the linen cloths laying on one side and then the linen cloth that they would cover the face of the person with. I love the detail of this. It says that they found it neatly folded at the other end of the slab on which Jesus' body would have been raised. You know, I, I like that detail because I don't know about you, but if I'd been crucified and died and raised from the dead and I realized I was raised from the dead, I don't know that I would have taken the time to neatly fold the stuff that was laying on me. But Jesus took the time to fold the linens that were laying on him, took the time to fold that face cloth up and put it over to the corner. You know how he could do that? Because somebody that knows they're getting ready to get up will take the time to do something like that. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was not a surprise to Jesus. He had been telling his disciples for months, hey guys, listen, we're going to go down to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to crucify me, but don't worry about it. On the third day, I will rise again. And you know what? It went in one ear and right out the other with the disciples. You know how I know that? How many disciples were waiting, on the tomb, waiting at the tomb on the third day? None. None of them. They were all hiding in a house somewhere. And so what we see is, is that they see all of this, but then they walk inside the tomb. They see the slab where Jesus' body lay and then looked over to the right side of the tomb and saw a second angel in the tomb, dressed in a long white robe, the Bible says in the Greek language, like a warrior. warrior. He looked like a, a warrior, a priest or a king, someone of importance. And the women didn't expect to encounter any of these individuals, the angel at the outside of the tomb and the angel inside of the tomb. And so when they walked inside the tomb, the Bible says that there was an angel that looked like a young man. And the reason that the Greek language refers to him as a young man in the Bible makes note of that is the fact it shows us that there are no broken down, old, feeble, decrepit angels working for God. Aren't you glad? Because guess what? They're working for you too. But I want us to look at Luke chapter 24, verses 5 through 8. And it says this, The women, then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek, the, the, both angels, the angel that was outside and the one that was inside, now both are talking to them. And it says, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. All of a sudden it clicked. All of a sudden it dawned on them what Jesus had been declaring all along and that Jesus, when he declared something, it definitely came to pass. And so what began this morning and began at this particular time, Jesus was not immediately visible to them. He had some other work that he needed to accomplish, which we're not going to get into today. But then he began for 40 days to make regular appearances to the, the regular 12 disciples and some other disciples. He spoke to them. The Bible says that uh, he assured them, he ministered to them, he built them up, getting them ready for what he was preparing to do, and that was to ascend to the Father and turn over this brand new thing in the earth called the church over to them for them to lead. But in one of his appearances in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, it says this, that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Now what this means is, is that Jesus had repeatedly told them, now when I'm resurrected, I'll meet you in Galilee. They were in Jerusalem at this time. Galilee is a little farther north, about 30 miles north into the northern part of the country. And so Jesus wanted them to go up there to meet him. And so finally they did, the 11 disciples, they went up there to the mountain to which Jesus had told them they had an appointment. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, which is, you know, I have a hard time not, not giving the disciples a hard time. What do I mean by that? How can they doubt that he's alive? He's standing right there in front of them. He had an encounter with Thomas. You might remember Thomas called Didymus where Thomas had made a comment to the disciples prior to Jesus' appearance to him and he said, hey, listen guys, I'm not gonna believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the scar in his side where he was pierced. And somehow, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus knew that those words had come out of Thomas's mouth. So a little while later, when Jesus appears to them, he looks over at Thomas and he says, Hey, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen but yet believe. But I'm going to help you out, my paraphrasation. He said, Here, take your finger and put it into the print in my hands. Take your hand and thrust it into my side. And don't be doubting, but believe. So again, you know, I have a hard time not being tough on the disciples, but then the Lord, he comes back to me and he says, well, I tell you to do the same thing. I tell you certain things in my word and yet you doubt those things. So I can't be too tough on the disciples because I have a tendency as we all do to wrestle with doubt anyway. But Jesus went on to say in verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, say all authority. Does that mean half of it? Does that mean a third of it? Partial? No, it means all of it. All authority has been given to me in heaven 
and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hallelujah. Once again, I'm here to declare to each and every one of us, Jesus is not laying in a tomb somewhere over in Israel. Jesus is alive. He's alive in me. He's alive in you if you've been born again, and he will live forevermore. Praise God. Now, I want to give you, and by the way, as, as I was preparing this message, uh, I really struggled because how do you talk about such an event as that, that we celebrate on Easter Resurrection Sunday? How do you talk about an event like that in just 45 minutes? You can't. I started out with about 20 pages worth of notes and I had to just keep whittling it down and whittling it down and whittling it down, asking the Lord for his help, asking the Holy Spirit for his help. Please, Lord, just show me because here's the thing, and I've shared this with you before. As a Bible teacher, I have a tendency to prepare too much because I want everybody to get the revelation from the Word of God. And what I have a tendency to do is over-prepare because here's, here's my greatest fear, if you will, as a Bible teacher is I'll run out of things to say. Well, if you've been around our church for any period of time at all, you've been on our Bible studies on Wednesday nights, I never run out of stuff to say. So I, I don't know why that's in my brain. But anyway, I was able to whittle this down. And I want to give you 10 reasons for the resurrection today. 10 reasons. So I want you to write these things down. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly and make a little bit of commentary Okay, but I want you to understand that with every one of these things that we're talking about, that without the resurrection, it's not possible. Okay, so here's number one. Here we go. Ready? Write this down, please. On the cross, Jesus died spiritually, but God raised him from the dead so that you could receive new life. New life. You need to understand something, folks. You, as a born-again Christian, you are not just a whitewashed, cleaned-up person. You are a brand-new person that did not exist before you gave your heart to Christ. You're not renovated. You're not fixed up. Now, we're in the process of becoming more Christ-like, but I want you to understand something. You were not a fixer-upper project that God just took on. No, you were a made-new project that God took on. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to get you born again, and then we're going to begin to work on the rest of you. So Jesus was raised from the dead so that you and I could receive a new life. Here's number two. On the cross, Jesus became guilty for you, not with his sin. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. But he became guilty for you and for me with our sin. But God raised him from the dead so that you could be declared innocent. Hallelujah. Anybody, now I'm not going to really ask for a 
show of hands because I don't want to incriminate myself or anybody else, but anybody ever been to court for a traffic ticket or anything like that? And again, I'm not going to look at anybody. And you had the judge throw it out and declare the case dismissed. I have. I've experienced that before. That's exactly what happened in heaven when Jesus was raised from the dead. Because Jesus took upon himself my sin and your sin. And he died with my sin and your sin. But when he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead so that you and I could have our case thrown out and be declared innocent. See, there's nothing in heaven. The Bible says that Jesus, by his crucifixion, wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. In other words, all the charges that were levied against you and me by the spiritual court of justice were wiped out by the Lord Jesus and you through his blood have now been declared innocent. So don't let the devil beat you up over things in your past. That is gone. The things that you committed before Christ you gave your heart to Christ. They've been forgiven, washed away, never to be brought up again. I thought I would get a little better amen than that, but hallelujah. So number three, on the cross. Anybody ever done something that you were ashamed of? Okay. On the cross, the Bible says that Jesus took your shame. Now I want you to imagine this, and I want you to picture this in your thinking. Forget some of the religious images and paintings and artwork that we've seen about the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was absolutely naked, had no clothing. He didn't have a loincloth on or, you know, a robe kind of halfway wrapped around him. He was absolutely naked while he was on the cross. This is a 33-year-old man who had always conducted and carried himself in a way where he was modest, he, he was uh, careful in how he displayed and carried himself. And for the first time in his life, the soldiers took the clothes off of him and nailed him to that cross and hung him on that cross absolutely stark naked. Don't you know he had to have been embarrassed and ashamed. And then on top of that, he's bearing the shame for sin that he did not commit. Why did he do that? He did that so God could raise him from the dead so that you could be free from shame and you could hold your head high. Yeah, we're, we're aware of what we did. We're aware of our faults and misgivings and those types of things. But praise God, because Jesus did that, you and I can hold our head up, especially before our Heavenly Father, because we have no reason to be ashamed before Him. Because He took that shame off of us so that we, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, because it certainly was nothing that you and I did, but simply because of what Jesus did for us, you can hold your head up high. 
This is a good one. Number four, on the cross, you'll remember, Jesus cried out and he said, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, meaning my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in his eternal existence, Jesus experienced separation from God. Now you gotta imagine, he never was separated from God in 33 years of living on this earth, but all eternity past, Jesus has always been And he was always united with the Father in everything that he was, everything that he said, everything that he did. And for the first time on the cross, he was separated from his heavenly Father because of your sin and my sin. And he died separated from God. But God raised him from the dead so that God would never leave and forsake you. Hebrews 13, chapter chapter 13 and verse 5, the Bible says, my God will never, ever leave you or forsake you. I know there are times when it feels like God's a million miles away, but are you going to believe how it feels at that moment or are you going to believe what the Word says? The Word says He's right there. He is your ever-present help in a time of need, even when you don't feel Him close by. Number five, On the cross, Jesus took the disrespect and dishonor of men. You know, they they mocked him. The Bible says that the Roman soldiers took a reed, and it was supposed to be a symbol of a king's staff. And the Bible says that they would walk up and take that reed and slap Jesus in the face with it. The religious leaders, when they arrested him and took him to the chief priest, Caiaphas' house, they would slap him and say things like, prophesy, O man of God, and tell us who slapped you. Mocking him, disrespecting him. And by the way, he did nothing to deserve any of this. But they disrespected him, they dishonored him. Why? So he could take the disrespect and dishonor off of us. On the cross, Jesus took the disrespect and dishonor of men, but God raised him from the dead because and so that you could receive the honor and respect of God. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, when you have the honor and the respect of God, let everybody else lump it. You know what I'm saying? Listen, when you're living a life that is right and is in line with God's word, there are going to be people who don't like it. There are going to be people who don't understand it, but that's okay. They don't have to like it. They don't have to understand it because I don't live my life to please them. I live my life to honor and respect my heavenly father because I know he honors and respects me. Again, not because of anything that I did, but because of what Jesus did for me. Number six, on the cross, Jesus died in darkness. You'll remember from the noon hour to, the, to 3 o'clock on our, our time frame, the Bible says that it was dark, that darkness came upon the earth. And I've often said, but it bears repeating, and that is this, it was country dark. Anybody know what country dark is? You ever been out in the country where there's no light pollution? It's dark, and if there's no moon and it's cloudy, you can be outside and hold your hand right here in front of your face, and you can't see it. 
And the Bible says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross from that noon hour to the three o'clock hour, there was complete and total darkness on the earth while he hung there. Why did he have to endure that? On the cross, Jesus died in utter darkness, but God raised him from the dead so that you could live and walk in the light. You don't have to walk in darkness. Friends, you don't have to be afraid of the dark. I remember when I was a little boy, I used to be afraid of the dark. I remember when one of my chores was carrying the trash outside. And this was back in the day, you know, when you had paper bags. You remember grocery paper grocery bags? And that's what my mom would put our trash in. And, and our trash can outside was in the backyard behind this shed that we used to have. And we had one of those porch lights on the back of the house that had one of those yellow lights in it. You remember the yellow bug lights? And they only lit so far. But out behind that shed, it was dark. And we kind of lived out on the edge of town a little bit. And so it was almost country dark back there behind that shed. So what I would do is I would get that storm door. I'd have that paper bag under my arm like this. I'd stand there. I'd build up the nerve. I'd hit that door handle on that storm door. I would run. I would slam dunk that bag into that trash can. And I would be back before that storm door ever shut. <laughs> Because I didn't want to be out there in the dark that long. But friends, let me tell you something. Because Jesus died in the dark, you and I live and walk in the light and have no reason to fear the dark. And I don't mean literal darkness. I'm talking about spiritual darkness as well. Here's number seven. On the cross, Jesus died as in obscurity. In other words, there was not a big to-do made about his death in, in and among the city and the town. And yes, his disciples were there. They witnessed it and they saw it. But here's the thing. Jesus died in utter obscurity, but God raised him from the dead so that you could receive meaning and significance. You're important to God. You mean something to God. You mean something to the plan of God. And you have purpose and meaning in this life. Here's number eight. On the cross, Jesus took your sickness. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 verses four and five that he would take our sicknesses and bear our pains. Yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. First Peter 2.24 just echoes it again. Peter just responds and says the same thing basically. Who in his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness and by his stripes you were healed. On the cross Jesus took your sickness but God raised him from the dead so you could receive healing in your body. In other words, if there's no resurrection, there's no healing. But thank God there was a resurrection and there is healing available to the people of God. Verse, or verse nine. Number nine, on the cross, Jesus took the curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 
for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? Why did he do that? The next verse says, so that the blessing of Abraham could come upon us. So Jesus took the curse that was on us on the cross, but God raised him from the dead so that you could receive and walk in his blessing. Hallelujah. You're not an accident going somewhere to happen. You are blessed and highly favored. And I, don't, I, I hesitate to even say that because it's become so clicheic in the church. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm blessed and highly flavored. I mean favored. No, I want us to understand when you stand up and you declare that I am blessed, what that means is there is an empowerment. There is something on your life that enables you to do something and be something that you would not be if that was not there. Number 10, on the cross, Jesus died on Friday as an everyday thief. Not that he stole anything or did anything of that nature, but if you'll recall, they crucified him with two other thieves. Matter of fact, the people chose a guy named Barabbas who was guilty of insurrection and killing people and causing rebellion and riots. They chose to have him live so that innocent um, not guilty, never committed a crime, Jesus could be crucified in his stead. On the cross, Jesus died on Friday as an everyday thief, but thank God, God raised him from the dead on Sunday as a king for you and for me. I'm so glad Jesus will never ever be labeled a thief, a liar, he will never ever be labeled as one who functions and operates. You remember they said that he cast out demons by the power of, of, of Satan himself. He'll never be able to be labeled like that again throughout eternity. There is started now, but when we get to heaven, it will be all about us celebrating and declaring boldly that worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive riches and honor and glory and majesty. For he that once was dead is now alive and lives forevermore. He is the king of kings. He's not a king of kings. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he is alive. Can I get an amen? amen. Hallelujah. So I want us to know this today beyond a shadow of a doubt. I want us to recognize Jesus is alive. And somebody might say, well, how do you know he's alive? Because he's alive in me. He's alive in me. I know one day when I breathe my last, I'll be able to see him face to face. But until then, I'm full of the life of God. I have his life flowing in me. And my job and my responsibility is to tell people that yes, Jesus did die on a cross. He suffered that horrible death, but that is not the full story of the gospel. The full story of the gospel is yet he did die, but he did get up. He was raised from the dead. And because he lives, we can live forevermore. Hallelujah.
Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful truth that we have that Jesus is alive. Lord, I thank you so much for the price that you paid for each and every one of us that you endured the horrible things of the cross. Everything that was put upon you, you took it, knowing that you were doing it for us, knowing that that was not the end of the story, knowing that when you gave up your spirit, when you breathed your last on the cross, that was not going to be all there was to it. Thank God you knew what the plan was, that on the third day you would be raised from the dead. And so, Father, we thank you for that today. Thank you that Jesus is alive. And because he does live, we are alive too. In Jesus' name. Now, I want to ask you, if, if you're here under the sound of my voice, you know, I believe I pretty much know everybody in the room. But if you're in the room today and, and you don't know where your relationship stands with Jesus... You don't know whether if your heart was to stop beating just a few moments from now, God forbid, that you would spend an eternity in heaven. Maybe in the back of your mind, you've been dealing with guilt and shame and maybe the devil's even lied to you and told you that God's mad at you, that he's disgusted with you. I want you to know something. That is, there is nothing further from the truth. God is not mad at you. He's not always pleased with what we do, but he's not mad at us. He loves us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price for you and for me. And I want to invite you today, if you're here and you're not sure where you are in your relationship with the Lord, whether you've ever given your heart to Christ or, or maybe you need to recommit your life to him today. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that on a daily basis. Just declaring, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to invite you to do that today. God loves you. He cares about you. And as we read in the scripture at the very beginning, Jesus did not come into the world to bring condemnation. He came into the world to deliver. And one translation says to rescue us. So I'm going to invite you to do something with me. I'm going to invite you to just say this simple prayer with me. Say this, say, Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for me and I believe with all my heart that he was raised from the dead. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Wash me in your blood. Make me clean and holy. I declare that you are the Lord of my life. I commit myself to you to live for you. Now I believe and I receive my forgiveness. Now fill me to the full and overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for a brand new start. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.